Amen, North Point? Amen. Why don't you guys grab a seat? I want to say uh, welcome. I want to say happy Palm Sunday. Anybody remember like that today's Palm Sunday? Anybody know what Palm Sunday is? We don't talk about Palm Sunday a lot, but today's Palm Sunday. If you don't know what it is, when you get bored, uh, when I'm talking, you feel free to Wikipedia that, okay? Not a problem. Great, great day in the life of a church calendar or something like that. Um, Starts really this whole concept of Holy Week. Uh, We got uh, Sunday coming, Easter Sunday is coming, and Palm Sunday really kicks off that entire thing. Our ushers are coming around right now with welcome books. Uh, If you are a regular or if you are a brand new guest with us this morning, we'd love it if you just get your name and any contact info that we don't have yet on you in there. That would be fantastic. That worked a lot easier this time, didn't it? There was really hard first service. Um, uh, my friend brought out my, 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 my bike for me, and it was rough. It was beating her up, but she got that this morning. Our offering is also coming around this morning, too, and so it would be great if you would uh, just engage in that. Pastor Rick wanted to say hi this morning. He's in um, a state called Ohio. This morning I said he was in Cleveland. I got numerous texts telling me he was in Cincinnati, and that matters. I don't know why that matters, but apparently that matters. So anyhow, he's working on some family stuff, working with his sisters on some estate stuff for dad, so pray for him. Uh, He he said, good good morning, uh, missing you guys this morning, so there you go. I want to tell you a story while we just kind of settle in. Is that okay? I like asking that because I never know what you're going to say to me. What are you going to say? Like, you can't say no, right? And if you get up and walk out right now, I'll cry. So, and you don't want to see me cry. It's embarrassing. The story is about a friend of mine. Her name is Jana Rowan. Some of you might know her. She's a local gal. Her name's Jana Rowan. Jana um, started an organization called Cycling to Give. That's her right there. And uh, she wanted to be here this morning, but she's also in Ohio. I don't know if something's going on, like, like everybody is fleeing Michigan to Ohio or something. I'm not sure what's happening. But anyhow, um, so she's in actually Cleveland this morning. Uh, she wasn't able to be here, so I just sent her some questions, and this is what she said. It's how she answered the questions. I said, what is Cycling to Give all about? She said, Cycling to Give is a Michigan-based nonprofit organization pedaling to make a difference one mile at a time. Our passion for cycling goes beyond a pedaling adventure to the next town. Our love for our military has driven our legs to pedal cross-country to raise funds and items for care packages for our men and women in uniform. I said, why are you so passionate about cycling to give? She said, there are so many folks out in the world who have nothing. I think it's our job as Christians and American citizens to give to those who don't have anything. And I have to say, it feels pretty good when you give. I said, tell me about a couple of your more recent rides. She said, the most recent ride to Cleveland... There's Cleveland again. That's weird, right? Cleveland took three days, and it was 240 miles. The trip was totally funded by myself. I pay for hotels and food and gas for the SAG vehicle, S-A-G, which is a vehicle that follows behind me to make sure that I was safe from traffic and that I had food and water. This vehicle follows directly behind me the whole trip at approximately 12 miles an hour. I know, right? On the back roads from DeWitt all the way to Cleveland. Pretty incredible that someone would drive 12 miles an hour for 240 miles. Or insane. Uh, I think one of the coolest things was going through the small towns. Um, As you can see from the photographs, I was in my Support Our Troops cycling gear, and I received lots of friendly honks of uh, support while going through those small towns. Having a support team was crucial. I've also pedaled my bicycle from Michigan to Texas for another charity event, and that event took 25 days pedaling 1,216 miles. My Texas trip did not include a support vehicle. It was just myself and another cyclist with uh, panniers or or saddlebags and a trailer. 
the great thing about having a support team in Cleveland was that I wasn't alone. I didn't have to be quite as concerned about oncoming traffic or upcoming traffic coming up behind me, and I did not have to be as concerned about being in the middle of nowhere. During the Texas trip, when we didn't have a support vehicle, we had a greater risk of being attacked by animals. We had coyotes run across the street, and we were even chased by a pack of German shepherds, five of them. So having a support team is definitely the way to go because it keeps you at ease, and again, you know you're never alone. I never had to worry about food or water, and I didn't have to worry about my bike breaking down because the vehicle had a bike rack on the back. I went through the city of Toledo on a bicycle. I didn't get very far. Thank goodness for my support vehicle to drive me through the city of Toledo because it was a very, very dangerous place to drive through. Uh, and then I asked her, what can we do to find out more about cycling to give? And if you're interested, she says she'll be at the DeWitt, DeWitt Community Showcase in April, the Farmer's Market all through the summer, and that at the end of the PowerPoint, which we, which we post on our website, you're welcome to grab that. And there's a lot of links on there if you're interested in finding out more about Jana Rowan and cycling to give. The only story that I have that even remotely relates to this uh, involves this right here. I was uh, probably, I don't know, a good uh, 22 years ago. Wow. 20-something years ago, um, I was living with a family. I was doing ministry uh, in, in California, and this family that I was living with, they had this uh, tradition that every year uh, they and their extended family would all get together on Memorial Day and do like this camping trip, right, at a local campground. And so they said, hey, you're living with us. You're like part of the family. You come with us. And I said, that's great. I love camping. I'm in. That's awesome. And they said, cool. Here's another piece of the, of the trip is that it's the annual man-only bike ride just for men. Yes, I'm in, right? I'm in. Okay, I'll do it. I said, hey, I have two problems. One, um, I haven't ridden a bike in like 12, 13, 14, 15 years. But they say you never forget how to learn to, how to ride a bike, right? So not a problem. I said, hey, I've never I haven't ridden a bike in like 12 years. He said, no problem. I said, I don't own a bike either. He said, no problem. You can borrow mine. My friend was 6'4". <laughs> do you see an inherent problem with this? You're smarter than I am. So I start this ride with these friends. They say, hey, it's a single track. It's, I don't know, 10 miles, something like that. Take us a few hours. It'll be fantastic. You'll love it. Single track. Single track means for us, uh, as we were riding, on this side was a cliff, and on this side was a mountain. But single track was pretty wide, probably as wide as this right here. And so I'm riding this bike. It took me a little while to get up on top of it. And I'm riding this bike, and as we are riding, I'm thinking, this isn't a problem as long as we don't stop, Right? If we stop, then we might have some issues. So I'm riding along. We're having a great time. The other thing that I did because I'm smart like this is I decided to ride in the back of the pack. The only other person behind me was a guy who was 57 years old, and he was towing a, a burly trailer with a child in it. I thought, I can do that, right? I'll just stay in front of him. We'll be okay and go slow. No problem. We start riding. We're about halfway into the ride. We go up to this hill. We're, we're climbing this hill, and at the top of the hill, I've noticed that everybody has stopped to wait for... Well, either me or the guy with the burly, I don't know, whatever. And so no problem, pedal up the hill, I get to the top of the hill, and, and I stop, and as I stop, I start to put my foot down, you know, because that's what you do when you get off a bike. And I had forgotten that this bike was not built for me. Now, the way the other guys tell it, they say it was the funniest thing they've ever seen, because for them, it all happened in slow motion. This didn't happen fast, it didn't happen quickly, it wasn't like over in a second. It took uh, 87 minutes, no, I don't know. It, for them, it, they said it felt like forever and they're all cracking up because that's what good friends do. So as I'm, as I'm there, uh, I'm going to put my foot down, I'm on the single track and I start putting my foot down and, and I realize pretty quick that I missed the, the side. And I go over the cliff, I'm not making this story up. 
Now, I'm smart, so what do I do? I hang on to the bike. I'm taking that down with me because that's going to protect me somehow, right? So I go probably 50 yards down this cliff, and I end up in a position something like this. Only the bike had gone with me. At some point, I got a little bit disentangled, and it was now around my leg and over my head. For you guys that sat in the front, you got to see that. For you guys that were in the back, you're spared, and you're welcome for that. I'm at the, I don't know, 50 yards down, something like that, in a position with my arms in a push-up in a, a bramble bush, like thorn bush. The bike is over my head, wrapped around my leg, and I'm thinking, well, this is interesting. <laughs> If I, if I go down to roll over, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy this beautiful face and I'll never get married. So what do I do? Because I'm really smart with this bike around my... I go, help. <laughs> and that started the next 15 minutes or so of these guys after they were able to stop laughing at me uh, to figure out a way to get down a hill and extricate, extricate me from the bike and get me out of the bush and help me get back up in the hill and, and finish the ride. Why are we talking about this? <laughs> What does this have to do with living the dream? That's the series that we're in right now, coming out of the book of Philippians. We will be in Philippians chapter 2 today. What's it got to do with that? What's it got to do with this the series is living the dream? It's really living God's dream for us. What is God's dream for us? What do these stories have to do with, with anything about God or Jesus or the Bible or living God's dream? I think they have everything to do with it. Today we want to unpack this concept of a support team. See, Jana Rowan was convinced that having a support team is so much better for her when she does these rides. And I learned real clearly as, I, as my beautiful face was almost destroyed in a bramble bush that, man, I'm really glad I had a support team with me to help me out of that. And that's what we want to talk about today, this concept of a support team. I have one more illustration that I want to show you on video. Have you guys seen the movie The Martian? Okay, so if you've seen it, then, then you kind of know what it's about. If you haven't seen it, this is what um, IMDb says, just to describe it. If you haven't seen it, seen it, we'll set up the scene for you. It says, when astronauts blast off from the planet Mars, they leave behind Mark Watney, played by Matt Damon, presumed dead after a fierce storm. With only a meager amount of supplies, the stranded visitor must utilize his wits and spirit to find a way to survive on the hostile planet. Meanwhile, back on Earth, members of NASA and a team of international scientists work tirelessly to bring him home while his crewmates hatch their own plan for a daring rescue mission. Now, here's the spoiler alert. If you've not seen this and you don't want to see how it ends, you'll want to close your eyes and block your ears for the next three minutes because the scene that I'm going to show you is, is towards the end of the movie and it's this whole concept that we're talking about this morning. This is what it looks like. Good Hansen, what's my relative velocity to Mark? 5.2 meters per second. Copy. Just in course. <laughs> 3.1 meters per second. Distance to target, 24 meters. 11 meters to target. 6 meters. <laughs> 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 Hold on, Mark.
that that story is uh, certainly about uh, Mark Watney, but, but really has more to do with the support team that he has around him trying to figure this problem out. Why are we talking about support team? Let's, let's jump into it. Philippians chapter uh, 2, starting in verse 19. This is what uh, Paul says to this church, this crazy church in a little place called Philippi. This is what he has to say starting in verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too can be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how things are going with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphrodites, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my needs. For he has been longing for all of you since you've become distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more than eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor, such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. That seems like a weird section, doesn't it? Like, like Paul just finished this whole real theological, deep theology on who Jesus was and how Jesus is the model of living God's dream for us. Paul just finished that, and it seems like he has this, um, like an like a ADD moment, kind of where he just shifts gears and he starts talking about something else. But in reality, I, I don't think so. He starts talking about Timothy and Epaphrodites, and, and we're going, who, who, who's that? <laughs> I think I heard of Timothy. Isn't there like a book in the Bible with his name or something? But this other guy with the E, that's weird. I don't know who that is. But, but the church that Paul wrote to would have known them well. And, and Paul's not just writing about random people. I think Paul has given real-world examples of people who are living this dream, of people who are really Paul's support team, the people that help Paul do what Paul does, the people that are helping make Paul who God wants Paul to be. And so he just begins to describe these people. And he talks about Timothy. We, we've heard of Timothy a little bit. This is kind of what we know of Timothy. Um, he met Paul in Acts chapter 16. You don't have to write any of this down. If any of this is interesting, it's all on PowerPoint, which gets thrown on the website later. But he met him probably in, in Acts chapter 16. In Acts 16, it says that Timothy's mother was a Jewish believer and that his father was Greek. We're not, you know, exactly what does that mean. It could mean that uh, Timothy wasn't, certainly probably wasn't raised in a, um, a, a home where both parents were believers. Mom was, dad wasn't. Goes on later to talk about uh, Timothy just in certain ways that help us to think that his dad certainly either didn't do anything to help him understand God or maybe dad wasn't alive at the time, maybe dad wasn't a believer. Somehow in that picture, this is where we meet Timothy. Folks in that area spoke really well of Timothy, so Paul takes him along on his missionary journeys. And Timothy is so dedicated to, to Jesus and, and so passionate about the mission that because he wasn't Jewish, he was Greek, 
He hadn't followed Jewish customs like circumcision as a young baby. And so as a grown adult young man, he says, okay, I'll go through with that. <laughs> right? Because he was so passionate about the mission. He was so passionate about going with Paul. So he does. He becomes Paul's go-to kid. And Paul poured into him and poured into him and trained him and equipped him and poured into him and encouraged him. Timothy becomes Paul's like right-hand kid. Eventually, Paul leaves Timothy as a pastor of a church in Ephesus, a church that was kind of special and dear to Paul's heart, and he's well known to the Philippian church. We, we may not know Timothy super well, but the Philippian church knew him easily as well as they knew who Paul was, because Timothy was there when, when Paul founded that Philippian church, when those initial people came together and, and this church began to grow. Paul was there, and Timothy was right there with him. So that church knew him well. That's, that's Timothy. We might say this about him. This young guy was a trained pastor, an experienced minister of the gospel, and a missionary. If that's true of Timothy, Epaphrodites was the opposite. Like he's on the opposite end. He's just a regular guy. What do we know about Epaphrodites? Not much. He's only mentioned here twice in Philippians. It's the only time that he's mentioned. He was well known to the Philippians because he came from Philippi. But, but we don't really know much about him, which is interesting because on one hand we think, well, that's, that's weird that they'd put him in the Bible if we don't know much about him. And yet, the other side of that is, this guy was just a regular normal guy, and he made it into the Bible. <laughs> that's a really cool thing. And so this is what we kind of know about him. Uh, he's just a normal, regular guy. He was chosen by the church in Philippi to take the financial gift that the Philippians wanted to give uh, Paul that they had collected for him. They asked uh, Epaphrodites to take it and do that. That's kind of a big deal, right? Because this is a long journey, however long it took them to get from Philippi to wherever they were headed. It took some days and weeks, maybe a month. And so lots of opportunity for Epaphrodites to hit up all the 7-Elevens on the way and buy lottery tickets or a, a, a little extra here and there to, 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 to supersize the meal or whatever. He, this is a big deal that Philippians collected all this money, gave Epaphrodites a bag of cash and said, hey, take this to Paul. Because Paul is incarcerated at the time. Some element of house arrest, he's in jail. Paul was a tent maker by, by trade, literally made tents. That's how he made his living. It's how he ate. So when he's in jail, they, like, how is he going to work to make a few bucks to either uh, get the food he needs or maybe the supplies he needs to continue writing these letters, pencil and paper, and the things that he needs, he's not able to get. Philippians said, we want to provide that for you. They sent Epaphrodites with this financial gift. And they asked him to stay with Paul and help him in whatever way Paul might need. So Epaphrodites is just leaving, leaving behind kind of this life for a season and going to head on this journey with this bag of cash to, to just pour into Paul. Give him the cash and I'll say, what do you need me to do? I'm, I'm here to help. How can I help? What can I do? How can I be helpful? What do you need? What should I, what are we doing today, Paul? Epaphrodites is just that kind of guy, apparently. Um, somewhere in the journey, he gets incredibly ill, super sick, not like the common flu or something, super sick and almost dies. But he doesn't die. That's kind of a big deal, right? He doesn't die, and so Paul sends him home back to Philippi uh, so that they would know he was okay. See, in a day and an age when it took so long to get information from one place to the next, can, can, can you picture the Philippians hearing a rumor that Epaphrodites was sick, and this is a guy that they love in their church, and so maybe they sent a message to Paul and said, hey, did he die? <laughs> and, and Paul writes down, no, and sends it back. But I don't know, what is it, like a month later that it gets there? Right? And they're all, oh, good, no. 
how about now? And they send it back. You're kind of tracking, right? So Paul sends Epaphrodites back to Philippi so that they can see him, they can hug him, they can put eyes on him, they can be like, oh, we're so glad you're not dead. We really like you. We don't want to lose you or whatever, right? So he sends them home. And Paul also sends this letter, this, this letter that we call the book of Philippians. Paul sends that with Epaphrodites by way of explanation of what happened, by way of thanks, by way of talking about some future stuff, all kinds of stuff he wants to communicate to the Philippians. He sends it with Epaphrodites. And while we don't know much about this guy, we can infer a couple of things. I think it's safe to say Epaphrodites was an incredibly trustworthy man, a blameless guy. I mean, you give him a bag of cash and you say, take it on a month-long journey or a three-week journey or whatever and just give it to Paul. That guy was trustworthy. And it seems like the church didn't have like any kind of issue with just knowing that guy's character. They just sent him to do it. I think it's safe to say that he was committed to the unity of the church, willing, willing to leave behind this life for a season and just go and serve in whatever way was necessary. That's a, that's a guy of pretty good character, right? I think it's probably safe to say that, that, that Epaphrodites was probably a humble servant. We don't know what his skill mix was. We don't know what he was good at. We don't know what he was terrible at. We don't know what he was uh, real skilled in or trained in or educated in. It's like he's just going to go and help Paul in whatever way is necessary. Like, what do you need me to do? I'm willing to do that. What a humble guy. He's not saying, hey, I'm very important. I need to stay here and make sure stuff happens over here with the house sales. I can't do that. He says, I'm in. Just, just what do you need me to do? So Epaphrodites is this guy that we don't know a lot about, but we can certainly assume some things from. Two very different guys, and yet play key roles in Paul's life, and really make up a portion of Paul's support team. There's actually key phrases on each of these guys. I thought they were key phrases that I wanted to point out. If you look at verse 30, for Epaphrodites, this I think is a key phrase that just really encapsulates who this guy is. It says this, it says, uh, uh, risking his life, the second half of verse 30 there, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. He says Epaphrodites was a guy that risked his life to complete what was lacking in your, the Philippian church's service to me. That's not a knock on the Philippian church. He's not putting them down. He's simply saying, hey, you couldn't all uproot yourselves and come be where I am. And so you sent this guy who would just complete that, who would do that. This guy that, that risking his life literally almost died to, to complete what you guys weren't able to complete in me. This is a great guy who just poured into me for the season that he was with me. And my hunch is because that's Epaphrodite's character. It wasn't just Paul he poured into. He's probably pouring into all kinds of folks in that church in Philippi. That's why they sent him. What do you need me to be? How can I help you? What, what, what can we do? Right, they sent him, and Paul uses this phrase about him. He says, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. That's a great concept of who Epaphrodites was. Timothy, a key verse for Timothy is over in verse 22. That's the second half of the verse there. It's right after the comma. He says this about Timothy. How as a son with a father... He has served me in the gospel. What a rich phrase, right? As a son with his father. So I read that this week and I was like, well, because I'm weird, I think like this. I was like, well, what kind of a son? Like at what stage? Like, like aren't there different kinds of stages when sons help their fathers? Like when your son or your daughter or whatever, when your kid is like five, right? And you got you to gotta change. You're, on the, you're driving down the highway and, you're, and, you're t- and your tire blows out and you pull over and you got to change the tire and your son is five. And he says, can I help dad? And you go, sure, son. Well, what, what kind of help is that when, he, when he's five? I'll say it real quietly because there's some younger ones in here. I'll say it real quiet. It's, it's kind of not. So what do you do? You say, hey, here, buddy, here, hold the lug nuts. Don't drop, don't move, don't drop them. Just hold these for me. Right, am I right or am I missing this? Just have them hold them, right? What is, what is, what is 
what help is that to the Father? Not a ton, except there's something beautiful about the relationship that's developed in that moment, right? Dad and son doing something together. And then think about a few years later, maybe when that kid is 10, and, uh, and dad's driving down the road because he never puts good tires on. He blows out another tire, right? And so he has to pull over, and he says, God, we got we to get out. we got to change the tire, son. And that 10-year-old, well, he's, he's like, can I help, dad? And dad goes, yeah, son. And so they hop out, and, and what does he do? Well, he's not five, so he's got to do more than hold the lug nuts. So what do you do? Well, maybe you get him on the tire iron. And you say, hey, bu- hey buddy, here's how it's going to work. You're going to do this one, and I'll do the other ones. But you just got to get on it, you know, however he does it when he's, when he's 10. Right? Are, you, are you tracking with me? Is this making sense? He helps a little bit. Not a lot of it, but a little bit. What real benefit is that to the father? I mean, it's going to take a little longer. The kid's not as strong, you know. But he's beginning to train his son on how to do it, right? And then what about when he's 16? Like 16, and, and he's, they're driving down the road again, and dad tires, and, and, and he blows another tire, and he pulls over to the side, and, and he looks at his son, and he goes, I, say, I think it's time for you to change the tire. And son goes, gosh. Ah, <laughs> oh, fine. And what's he thinking? He's thinking, he's thinking that 16-year-old son is stronger than I am at this point. <laughs> and it's February. <laughs> And he doesn't get cold. You can't, you can't kill the kid. Like, he doesn't get, like, he begins to take over for dad because dad is learning. I'm, I, I'm not really cut out for this. And 16-year-old gets out and brrr, spins that tire off in half the time. And dad says, took you long enough. But, you know, but, right? Like, there's these different kinds of phases when a son is helpful to a father. So, the question is, what is Paul talking about? What phase is Paul talking about? Ready? Here's the big pastoral theological answer. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, maybe, maybe he's talking about all of them. I mean, in each of those phases when, when, when child is young and not so helpful to dad and when child is old and really taking over for dad, doesn't dad get something out of all of that? Well, it may not be helping change the tire, but there's certainly some kind of relational development. There's certainly some kind of spirit that's shared, love that's shared, moment that's shared. And I think we would all say the dad who doesn't let his son help is a dad who's going to experience no relationship later on in life. Am I fair in that? I think there's something so powerful to that. And so Paul uses this analogy with Timothy. He says, like, like a son with his father, he has served me. In all of those, probably all of those different capacities, starting with maybe Timothy early on going, where are we going now, Paul? Where are we going now? Right? And just walking along behind him to maybe when he's helping carry stuff to maybe when he's setting up <coughs> ministry stuff and maybe at the end when, he, when, when Paul leaves him to just be this pastor in Ephesus. So, he says, so Paul says, this kid has been so important to me. And we're beginning to see this picture because Epaphrodites is a guy that poured into Paul. Poured some money into Paul, poured some encouragement into Paul, said, I'm happy to help you in any way possible. He was pouring into Paul. And Timothy is a guy that Paul was pouring into, right, as a son served with his father. He's been pouring into Timothy for these years and years and years. And this makes up part of Paul's support team. Here's the challenge, I think. It makes all kinds of sense for, uh, for me for Epaphrodites to be a guy who pours into to Paul or f- to have people that are pouring into me because we all need teachers and coaches and leaders and helpers and parents and trainers. We, we get that. That makes sense to us. I need people who, who pour into me. That's beneficial to me. You're with me, right? The one that's more challenging is, is the Timothy piece. Like, so there's people that I need to be pouring into because there's benefit to me. 
That's where it hurts our brain a little bit. Wait, what's the benefit of me pouring into someone else? I get the benefit of someone pouring into me. That makes sense. I, I, I get that. I've done that in my industry. I've done that in work. I've done that in my family life, whatever. But when I pour into somebody else, isn't it all about them? Like, aren't I just helping them? And the answer is uh, no. I don't think so. I think I actually get something out of pouring into other people. Here's a couple of verses just to shape our heads around. We'll pop them up on the screen. 1 Peter 3.15 says it this way. It says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. Seems to be this, this natural, normal expectation that is part of living this dream, living this relationship with Jesus Christ, that I'm going to be sharing with other people why I think that, why I do that. People are going to be asking you questions like, why do you go to church? Why do you read the Bible? Why do you pray? Why do you hope in Christ? Why is that so important to you? And, and, and as a natural part of this whole thing, you're going to have things to say to them. Oh, well, because, oh, well, because, well, it's like, and there was this time, that's really you, you pouring out. It seems to just be this natural, normal, at least Peter felt it was this natural, normal thing for you, for me, to be pouring into the lives of others. In 2 Timothy this is Paul writing to the same Timothy you've been talking about, which is interesting. Second Timothy 2, he says this, And the things that you've heard me say, Paul, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So not only is it normal and natural, it's just going to happen, but to be intentional about finding people that you can be pouring into. It seems to be this normal, natural, you need to be intentional, expected, commanded, peace, of, of this whole becoming a fully devoted follower of Christ. The fact that I pour into other people, there's benefit to me. What does that mean? How does that look? I, I asked the pastoral staff this week, um, what's the benefit of pouring into other people? Because I thought they would have great wisdom and I would just steal all of it and tell you that it's mine. But now I feel bad, so I'm telling you it's theirs. This is what they said. I said, what's the benefit of you pouring into other people? Why, what do you get out of that? And they said, well, how do you multiply without pouring into someone else? That was a quote that one of them said. Another one said, well, I, I learn more by teaching than by being taught. And they talked about the Great Commission in Acts chapter 4 and these ideas of I learn more by teaching somebody else than by being taught. One of them used uh, the concept of sports in the sports world. And they said, if you don't pass it on to the whole team, they won't win. The idea being if you're excellent at something and you're on the team and you're not training others on that team to be as excellent as you are, it, the whole team loses. Is this making sense of how there's some benefit to me when I pour into others? We get how there's benefit when people pour into us, but we struggle sometimes to figure out how, what's my benefit if I'm pouring into somebody else. Uh, maybe 10, 15 years ago, there was this marketplace principle, marketplace business principle, marketplace principle, not, not, not a biblical principle or a Christian principle or whatever, just a marketplace principle that went something uh, like this. He said, if you're excellent at something, don't share that secret with anybody. Be threatened by the up-and-comers. Stay one step ahead of the new guy because that's the win. I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. <clears throat> Ten, excuse me, 15 years ago, that was the ticket. If you were excellent at something, you had a secret in that, do not tell. Maybe at some point when you're close to retirement, maybe you'll write a book or you'll have a seminar or something to make some money or whatever, but it, it, really you, you're not giving that away. It's interesting because the current marketplace principle, not, not from the Bible, not, not Jesus said, the marketplace principle says this, every successful person needs to be mentoring someone else. That's how you know when you're successful. Not because you made a billion dollars, not because you're at the, the lead of your industry, not because you sit in an office with CEO on it, but because you're, you're pouring that into somebody else. That's how you know that you've arrived, that you are pouring it into somebody 
else. It says uh, they will expand and influence, uh, enhance your influence, ultimately going places that you could have never gone, and that's a win for you. It's backwards for us a little bit. We think, well, wait, me pouring into that kid so that they'll end up with more money and, and go places I couldn't take my industry. There's a win for me? Absolutely. That expansion of influence. And the crazy thing about all of that is it really is a biblical principle. Marketplace just landed on this. They're feeling, you know, genius because they've got this worked out. And it's crazy because God's been saying it for thousands of years. The support team that you need to live is made up of people who are pouring into you and people that you're pouring into. A guy by the name of um, Bob Diffenbaugh, uh, he's a contributor to Bible.org. This is what he says about the concept of a support team and in particular this passage in Philippians 2. He says this, He says, let me attempt to sum up the difference between the ministry of Timothy and the ministry of Paphrodites. Timothy ministered for Paul by going to places Paul was not able to go. By his preaching and teaching, Timothy extended, we might even say multiplied, the ministry of the apostle and thus the work of the gospel. Epaphrodites, on the other hand, ministered to Paul personally. He provided him with necessities such as food and clothing. And while Timothy served, so to speak, as Paul's mouthpiece, Epaphrodites served as Paul's hands and feet. Epaphrodites probably ran errands for the apostle, uh, doing things for him that he could not do during his incarceration. In doing so, Epaphrodites facilitated the ministry of Paul. We're in a series called Living the Dream. What are we talking about today? Simply put, living God's dream for us requires that we have a support team. People pouring into us and people that we're pouring into. Let me say it really, really bluntly and put it like this. Without a support team, you cannot be a fully devoted follower of Christ. Here's the cool thing that I get to do. I get to drop a sentence like that and say, man, you really want to tear that apart today in your life groups this week with your groups of people who you're spending time with and your families and that kind of stuff. I want to just drop this sentence and say, without a support team, people that are pouring into you and people you're pouring into, you cannot be a fully devoted follower of Christ. That sentence requires to be torn apart and go, wait, are you just saying stuff because they put a microphone on your face or is this legit or, man, you want to tear that apart this week. Here's what I want to do. I want to say, uh, uh, I need other people. You need other people. You need to be pouring into someone, a Timothy. Somebody needs to be pouring into you, to you like an Epaphrodites. And here's how I want to uh, play a little thing with you. I'd like you to grab a piece of paper. Or if you're an electronic person, you, you grab your phone, pull open the notes thing. If you have paper, you'll need a pen. If, if you have a phone or, you know, notes or whatever. If you don't do paper and you don't have an electronic device, grab a pen. You can write on your hand. That's okay here. And there will be no problem whatsoever. But I want you to write something down. We call it 333. I want you to write, write this down. Or type it out or you pull it out your iPad or, or whatever. I really, really think this is important to write this. Or type it or thumb it or text it or whatever you're going to do. All right, three, three, three. Uh, in the next couple of minutes, I'm going to talk, tell a story, but I want you to pay, not pay attention to me. I want you to be thinking. Three, three, three. Three people that you've poured into in the last three years will give you about three minutes to do it. You're making two lists, really. You're, you're writing three people that you've poured into in the last three years will give you about three minutes to do it, as well as three people who have poured into you in the last three years will give you about three minutes to do it. Make sense? A list of three people that you poured into in the last three years. A list of three people that have poured into you in the last three years. While you're thinking, I just want to tell you a couple stories, show you a couple pictures. This is Ricky. 
uh, Ricky is the boy, not the girl. Ricky, uh, Ricky's engaged. She's very excited, apparently. Um, and, and Ricky, I met a number of years ago. I, I, all these folks are from California. I, didn't, I thought it might be weird if I picked people you'll know. You, you won't know any of them, I don't think. Uh, Ricky, I met some years ago. Uh, Ricky was, um, from right up from the get-go, was just, was just uh, hungry for God's word. He was interested in, in thinking, tearing it apart, asking all kinds of questions I had no answers to. And so I, I had the privilege of just pouring into Ricky over the years and encouraging him to say, hey, man, yeah, what about being a pastor? You ever think about being a pastor? You should be a pastor. I don't know. One day you should be a pastor. And I would just leave him stuff to do. Ricky today is second or third year in his master's degree at Princeton Theological Institute. He's heading to be a pastor. This kid is way smarter than I will ever hope to be. <laughs> and he's going to have conversations with people that I would never be able to have conversations with. This is cool. Ricky's a cool kid. Uh, this is uh, Simon. Uh, Simon is uh, Simon's a great kid. I met Simon some years ago. Uh, Simon was headed for a professional hockey career. He's actually uh, was pretty good, still is pretty good at hockey. That was his, um, his trajectory. And, and pretty quick, it was obvious that Simon just had a real knack for uh, cross-cultural experiences. So he would get into a room with people from different places, and he would just have a knack with connecting them and meeting them, hanging out with them, asking questions, livening it up. And so I just started dragging Simon to every missions trip I could think of or sending him on every trip that we could figure out. And today, Simon, it, it last two summers, and then coming up for this next year, has actually been an intern with a missions organization in Eastern Europe called Josiah Venture. He's passionate about cross-cultural missions, sharing the gospel of Christ with people through creative methods. He does sports camps and English teaching and all kinds of stuff. Simon's a, he's a good kid. This is um, Tim. Tim is the, uh, the old man in the picture. <laughs> Tim, uh, I met Tim a long time ago. Tim was a good kid. He grew up uh, in, a, in a youth group I was working in. Uh, for some years, he decided to, to, just to pick a different path in life. He kind of went uh, south, not geographically, just spiritually for a little time. And um, some stuff happened. He came back to Jesus in a massive way. Tim, uh, Tim, Tim today is a single father, raising his son by himself, trying to figure out what it means to be a man of God and raise a son that loves Jesus. Tim is passionate about Jesus Christ. Tim is passionate about his son and connecting those, those dots. This is Shannon. Shannon, uh, Shannon, we met Shannon when um, she's probably like uh, eight, 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 nine years old, maybe, maybe ten years, ten years old, I think nine, ten years old. Uh, Shannon's mom passed away when she was four. Shannon grew up in a home with no female influence, just her dad and her brother, single, single father, raising her, did a fantastic job. Em and I uh, met up with Shannon and began pouring into her life. And um, Shannon today it, it just finished, a year ago, she just finished as a graduate from Berkeley School of Music. She's been leading worship at a church for the last year and is now deciding what the next phase of life looks like for her. That's Shannon. La- last picture, I promise, last story. Uh, these are two guys. Their names are uh, Craig and... Um, and Jeff, they're invisible. Oh, wait, uh, Craig and Jeff. Uh, Craig's on your right, and Jeff would be on your left. Craig, uh, these are two guys that poured into me. Uh, Craig was uh, a guy, uh, one of my early pastors. He was the pastor that married Em and I, and he was instrumental in helping us understand what it means to leave extended family and cleave to your spouse. He was instrumental in me trying to figure out what does this crazy family thing mean? Not, not so much Emily and I, but the crazy family. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh-huh. Yeah, he was instrumental in helping me begin to think through that and pray through that and be frustrated through that. Craig's a guy that's poured into me in huge ways. We actually have the opportunity at the end of uh, beginning of April, we're going to go to a, a retreat at Lake Ann. He's the speaker up there, so he's going to pour into us even more. It's just a cool, cool thing. Jeff, on the other hand, Jeff is, um, he's the bald one. He's one of the most compassionate guys I've ever met in my life. So a number of years ago, I said, hey, will you mentor me? And he said, no. And so I said, can we just do coffee a lot? He said, that's fine. 
because I needed to understand compassion the way he does. Because I'm wired for sarcasm. Sarcasm and compassion don't always go hand in hand. I said, Jeff, you just got to hang out with me. Like, some of you has got to rub off on me because I don't, I don't get this. These are guys that poured into me. People that I got to pour into. Okay, so back to you. That list you just made, how'd that go for you? Was that hard? Hard time coming up with three? Maybe it was easy. Was it, was it easy? Maybe you're like, Chris, stop talking. I'm on 15 and I want to keep going. All right? When you look at that list, does it make you smile? Yeah, I tell these stories, they make me smile. Like, this is very, very cool. Those, those young people that I poured into, uh, I got more out of that, I think, than they did at times. Because there's something valuable to us when we pour into the life of someone else. And so I ask you, the list that you made, was that difficult? Was it, was it easy? Is it something to celebrate? Wh- however that came out for you, if that was a difficult thing to do, would you just look around the room for a second? Or even if it was an easy thing for you to do, maybe you're just looking around the room for a second. There's like 200 people in here. Maybe you begin to make a new list. It says, God, who do you want me to pour into? Like, who's somebody that you want me to connect with? I don't know what I have. I'm like Epaphrodites, man. I don't know what I'm good at. I don't even know what they need, but I, for whatever reason, I'm just thinking that person right there, and I don't know. God, is that somebody you want me to pour into? Or maybe you're, you're thinking, hey, there's somebody here that needs to pour into me. I've noticed that about her, and I really want that. Hey, would you just hang out with me some? <laughs> like a really awkward dating invite, Right? Maybe we begin to make a new list. Maybe it has nothing to do about this room and this place. It's your, it's your workplace or it's your, your hobby group, or your friend group or on the sports field. You've got people in your head that you're thinking, man, I need a support team. I want to make sure I have a support team. People that are pouring into me and people that I'm pouring into because that's vital. That's what it requires to live this dream that God has for us. I mean, even Jesus had a support team. Like Jesus had his disciples. We know this, right? Jesus had his disciples. And it's funny because sometimes we think, well, yeah, obviously, he just poured into the disciples for three years. You know what? I think they poured into him too. I think he got so much out of that, just like they got so much out of that. Matter of fact, we're going to celebrate something here in just a minute, and it's just a little picture of an event in their lives, in the lives of Jesus and his guys. We call it communion or the Last Supper. For Jesus, it was a meal with his guys. That was the last meal that he was going to celebrate with them. But it's interesting because this is, this is part of that whole pouring into thing. This is what it says in the message version of the Bible in Luke 22. It'll pop up on the screen so you can see it, describing this event. It says, The day of unleavened bread came. The day of Passover lamb was butchered, and Jesus sent Peter and John off. That's part of his, his support team. Saying to them, Go prepare the Passover meal for us so we can eat it together. And they left. And he found everything just as they had told him and prepared the Passover meal. And when it was time, he sat down, all the apostles with him, and he said, don't miss this, you've no idea how much I have looked forward to eating this Passover meal with you. I I know you want to read on. I know you want to see what happens, but just don't, can we pause for a second and just take a breath? Jesus just said to his support team, you have no idea how much I've looked forward to this. I love this. Like, this meal that we're about to share, and if you know what's going to happen, you know it's going to get real weird real quick. But Jesus is looking forward to it because he gets his, like, as much out of that relationship. As he was pouring into those guys, he gets something out of it. He says, I know, you've no idea how much I've looked forward to eating this Passover meal with you before I enter my time of suffering. It's the last one I'll eat until we eat it all together in the kingdom of God. 
So taking the cup, he blessed it, and then he said, take this and pass it among you. As for me, I'll not drink wine again until the kingdom of God arrives. Taking bread, he blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, given for you, eat it in memory. He did the same with the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant written in my blood. Blood poured out for you. Do, do you realize that the hand of one who is betraying me at this moment is even at this table? Jesus begins to unpack this concept and they, they, they celebrate this meal together. And, and I just want to say this. Normally when we come to this time of communion, I know we're thinking kind of about sin. We're, we're being thankful for the death of Christ and the cross that forgives us of all that sin and this relationship that we can have with him is paid for by him. I, we're thinking all that and all that is really good and important stuff to have in our head. Can I just put one more thought in your head as we begin to pass out the, the bread and the juice and, and we're going to sing a song. You can take, take that communion anytime you want to over the next couple of minutes as you feel led. Can I just put this thought in your head though? Maybe as you're, you're, you're looking at that juice and you're looking at that cracker, you're thinking, God, who do you want on my support team? Who's part of this for me? I want to be a fully devoted follower of you and, I, and, I, and I'm convinced it requires people pouring into me as much as I'm pouring into others. Who should that be? And so as you take communion and as we sing together and as we finish up, I just want that thought to be floating in your mind.